My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Ahrens, Curator and Director of Education at the Foxfire Museum. Well, it's no surprise, but the holiday season is already right upon us. Hard to believe we are finishing up our fourth season of this podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us on this journey. It's been a great adventure and I'm excited to join you all for season five next year. Before we get there though, we're reflecting on coal this month. We all know and have heard from parents and grandparents and other friends and family members that when we're children, if we don't behave, you're going to end up with coal in your stocking. But most kids probably don't actually know what coal is today. Coal is a hard black rock (laughs) that comes from mines located throughout the United States. Coal itself is a deposit of carbon that's been formed from plant remains that are compacted, hardened, altered, and changed by heat and pressure over millions and millions of years. It's most often found where there were prehistoric forests or swamps. The biggest deposit of coal is actually in Wyoming and Montana, which is over in the Powder River Basin area. Um, But the Probably most well-known deposits are here in Appalachia, but there are scattered deposits also throughout the United States, including the Midwest, like Illinois and Indiana. Coal was used for several hundred years, but really became a household commodity in the United States in the mid-1800s. It wasn't until about the turn of the century, though, that coal was pretty commonplace in homes. Um, This was in part due to industrialization, the increase in transportation and um, other technological developments that created a higher demand for coal, but also enabled people to better access coal. And so this led to the creation of coal mines. Believe it or not, coal is still used today. As recent as 2019, about 25% of electricity in the United States was generated by coal plants. In 2003, 50% of electricity came from coal. You might be surprised to hear this connection between electricity and coal, but the heat produced by coal converts water into high-pressure steam, which powers turbines, which then in turn produces the electricity that we use. And so obviously between 2003 and 2019, we can see a drastic shift away from coal power, but it still is an important part of our economy today. Coal is also used to make steel. Coke, which is the product created once you burn coal, is used in the the steel production process. One of the things that coal is often criticized for, though, is its environmental impact. So a lot of the byproducts from coal or from coal usage or even coal mining creates contaminants. So pollutions in the water and air systems um, and the emissions from coal create uh, greenhouse gases. So (laughs) this is, you know, meant to be an introduction to coal. There are documents and documents and documents of research about coal, about coal's impact, um, about the social impact of coal. 
Um, and so we'll link some resources on our webpage, but we definitely encourage you to do some research on your own to find more about different aspects of coal and coal usage that might interest you. Appalachia is well known for its coal mining though, especially in central Appalachia. So in Georgia, we consider ourselves to be part of the southern region of Appalachia, whereas central Appalachia is comprised um, primarily of Kentucky, West Virginia, and Virginia. And this is really the coal mining region of Appalachia. When coal companies were established, in this region of Appalachia, they created a system that we'll hear more about in some of these interviews today that in many ways took advantage of the people who lived there and left considerable environmental damage that we're still um, reckoning with today. Again, this is another aspect of coal and the coal industry that I encourage you to seek out further resources on. There's been lots of documentation, including books, that do justice to that aspect of coal's story in Appalachia. But just a brief overview of, of the history of coal mining in Appalachia. Um, it was discovered in this region in the latter half of the 18th century. But again, the emergence of technological developments and the transportation improvements, specifically the railroads, led to the growth of industry that demanded more coal. Those coal companies saw a demand for um, that resource and started creating these systems to mine for coal and export it out of Appalachia. After World War II, there was a shift to petroleum as it started to slowly replace coal. But in the 1960s, when electricity became pretty much a household item, there was an increased demand for electricity produced by coal. And we'll hear, again, one of our interviewees speak about this rise, and he attributes it to the 1970s, and so this would have all been happening around the same time. Um, coal's used both domestically and is exported to other countries as well. Again, as I said, it's, it's a very common source of electrical energy in the United States. So given all of this knowledge, we can start to rethink about what a lump of coal would actually mean in a stocking. So in the mid to late 1800s, a lump of coal would have actually been a, a precious resource. So what does that mean when we're looking at these cultural traditions that surround the holidays? Why do we say you're going to get a lump of coal when for a long time coal was actually a, a good gift to get? And that happens when we start to see coal become a household item, very common item. For people who were poor, coal would have, again, been an important resource for a long time that may have been more expensive. But again, with rises in industrialization and other factors, we can start to see the price of coal come down. It becomes easier to access, becomes more commonplace. And so then it becomes easy for parents to tell their children, well, Santa's going to bring you coal because the parent can just grab a piece of coal and throw it in the stocking as they have a, a, a plentiful amount of that. So we don't start to see cultural references to coal until maybe the late 1800s, early 1900s. It just became a part of these cultural Christmas traditions that we have developing in our country. I encourage you today, if you are teasing a child about getting coal in their stocking or somebody brings it up to you, to just stop and think about these interviews that you're going to hear today and what role coal actually plays in our, our country and in our culture. Maybe reconsider what that resource should actually mean. And to take the time to include other people in those conversations and to just share these stories with them today. So we're going to hear from three retired miners in this podcast today. These miners were interviewed in Kentucky in 2007 by Foxfire students. 
each one brings a slightly different perspective. And if you want to read their whole stories, they're available in the 2009 edition of the Foxfire magazine. So we're first going to hear from Carl Shope, and I placed him first because he seems to be a little bit older than the other two. And he talks more about the mining communities of his childhood. So he is not the first miner in his family. His father was a miner. And he takes some time to describe what those mining communities in Kentucky looked like in the 1940s. And he also talks a lot about the labor movements in Kentucky and the unionization and what the union movement meant to him. This is Alex Owens interviewing Carl Shoup. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Carl W. Buck Shoot. Uh, I was born uh, November the 2nd, 1946, in a little town called Cumberland, Kentucky, here in Harlan County, Kentucky. And uh, I was uh, born at home. Uh, I kind of joke about my birth. I, my, I was born on the couch. My mother got up and uh, finished mopping the kitchen after I was born. But that's just a little joke I try to say. But uh, anyway, I, I'm a third generation coal miner, and my my ancestors have lived in this in these mountains for a couple hundred years. Coal mining is my history, and I'm a very proud coal miner. And uh, my family has been uh, union coal miners. I'm very proud of that fact. Here in this county, through when coal was first introduced, I think the first ton of coal was mined out of this county down in Wallens, a little town down the southern part of the county. It was probably about 1890. So coal has been a part of this county for probably, you know, better than a hundred years. And uh, I'm not going to. What I would like to talk about here today is my growing up in this coal mining community, and it's somewhat unique in the mountains of eastern Kentucky because I was raised in a coal camp that was owned by United States Steel Corporation. And this coal community was uh, what we refer to as a captive mine. That's uh, my father started working at this particular coal mine. Uh, I think it was like 1937. The industry was uh, the coal industry was uh, flourishing. It, you know, the uh, World War II was kind of in the in the horizon, and steel making was a very important part of the uh, industrial part of the world at that, or the United States at that time. And like I say, uh, United States Steel came in here and purchased uh, thousands of acres of coal and timber and of these mountains, and they uh, became a uh, a coal producing company. To produce the coal, they, they didn't have the uh, physical resources in the area that they needed, so, so therefore they uh, went up to New York uh, when the boats came over, and they would uh, recruit people to come into these mountains and, uh, and work in the coal mines. During the 40s and, and early 50s, uh, coal was a very, very substantial part of my childhood, I'll put it that way, and, and the little community I lived in was Lynch. Lynch, Kentucky, and it was a self-contained community, if, 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 and I'll try to explain that. And what I mean by self-contained was that we had our own theater, we had our own schools, we had our own hospital, we had our own uh, 
uh, I mean, our community was self-contained. We, anything that we needed was provided by the company. They provided the housing, they provided the electricity that we needed, they provided our food. All my father had to, had to provide was his labor. And he was, uh, he was compensated for his labor in the initial years through a payment system that was called Scrip. And this Scrip uh, could only, that he was paid by could only be used at the, what, they, what we refer to as the uh, company store. This is my personal opinion as now looking back at my childhood and the way I was raised is that we were captives of the company. They kind of just treated the men exactly the way they wanted to, paid them what they wanted to, worked them as long as they wanted to. And this is the era of the time frame in, in our history here in the mountains that the, uh, that the men and the employees of the mines kind of, they, they got tired of this type of treatment. And so therefore, uh, the United Mine Workers of America, John L. Lewis, uh, was very instrumental in those years to uh, organize the miners and, and get them better benefits and stuff. And so I don't mean to ramble, but this, this Harlan County has got the nickname of Bloody Harlan. It, uh, that's, th this name came about back in the 1930s and this name came from the actual forming of the United Mine Workers Union here in this part of the country. And you also have, you know, it goes on up into West Virginia and all the, you know, all the co-producing counties and states have their labor history, but labor history is very rich in, in this particular area here of Harlan County. This was, a, this was a problem as far as the working conditions and stuff in the mines and, and my father, my father, who his father before him also was involved in the union, but my father was a, a union organizer, and he, he helped he helped organize this this part of the country. He was actually shot in the hand from a, a company gun thug. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was fortunate enough to to work at U.S. Steel. They they recruited uh, the best coal miners, the strongest coal miners, the best. Uh, that's a prejudiced statement, I guess, but my father was a big man. He was like 6'2", probably 220 pounds, very strong, big hands. He always used to say, strong, back, weak mind. But, uh, but like I say, we, uh, I, I was, it was, my childhood was somewhat unique growing up in a captive coal mining camp. And this is, I think this is somewhat unique. A lot of people don't realize when they think about Eastern Kentucky, they think about the hills and the hollers and a bunch of hillbillies running around barefooted and all this. I mean, they really do. And 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 they, uh, the CBSs of the world, they uh, they portray us as that. But at one time in history, we were like that. I mean, it was it's a fact, you know. But uh, but like uh, we talk about uh, the the way I was raised. I, okay, I had I, I had an outdoor toilet. But don't get mad at me for saying this, but in Georgia, and I, you know, you guys didn't take the initiative to organize and, uh, and get your fire wage and your fire treatment and whatever, but they call us dumb hillbillies, but we, we were smart enough to figure that out, and, and that's like me right now, I'm 60 year old, and I got injured in a coal mining accident at a union mines, I draw a good pension, I have 
total uh, health insurance. I, I'm fully covered. If I croak, my wife gets a death benefit. I mean, I'm, my union has taken care of me through my lifetime, and I'm very passionate about that aspect of my life. Thank God that, that he saw fit to let me be, uh, if I had to work in the coal mines, mm -hmm. to let me be a union coal mine. In this interview, we're going to listen to a discussion with Connie McKnight. He is a third generation miner. He wanted to be a miner. He actually dropped out of high school. He, like Carl Shope, is very proud of the path that he chose for his career. Connie's story shares more of the realities of working in the mine. Um, so whereas from Carl we heard growing up in a mining community, Connie takes us into his experiences as a miner. This is Alex Owens, May 4th, 2007. My name is Connie L. McKnight. I'm uh, originally from here in Benham. I was born here at Benham. And when were you born? January 3rd, 1957. Why did you leave? At that time, the coal business was going down and it, it wasn't as productive as what it was. And I'd gotten a job over in a different county for Shamrock Coal Company over in, uh, they were based out in London, Kentucky, but they, they had a mine over in Leslie County, which it would have been about the same distance driving from here to the mine or from uh, Corbin to the mine and uh, Corbin was a much bigger town and had more to offer and so uh, I moved down there. I was born like I said here in Benham and then my father had moved to uh, Peoria, Illinois and we'd, we'd stayed uh, in Peoria and around Indianapolis until I was about three years old and my father he moved back here and uh, my grandmother raised me in a place called Clover Lake, I guess you, uh, there's mining going on up there now. It's not too far from here, it's above the college. And That's in Kentucky? It's right here, about five, yes, about five or six miles from here. Stayed up there till I was probably, uh, my father built, I don't know if you guys went up that way, but there's a big silo up there that uh, used to be the old 37 mine, U.S. Steel. My father built that silo. And he'd worked in and around the mines. I wouldn't know what year that was. It was I was a young kid still in grade school at that time. And uh, then in 1963, I think it was, Scotia Coal Company uh, had opened uh, Blue Diamond. Blue Diamond. My grandfather had worked for Blue Diamond Coal Company over in Leatherwood, Kentucky. It's over in Letcher County. And, and in 1963, they opened up uh, Scotia Coke Company. And my father, he, uh, and all the rest of my family, they had they had gotten work up there, and uh, and he worked there until he retired. In 90, I think he retired somewhere around 1990. Uh, prior to that. He had worked in the mines where they used the old carbide lights and hand loading and things like that. And uh, so I grew up around coke camps about all my life and knew that that was going to be my future, you know, because, you know, they make good money and, and, you know, you just couldn't wait till you got 18 years old and 
get in one of those new cars and cruise it up and down the street. And uh, so that's, I knew, you know, at an early age, that's what I wanted to do. So when I became 18, all my family, they were employed up at the Scotia Coat Company. And when I became of age, you know, I put my application in. And just because you had family up there, that doesn't mean, you know, that they hired you right off the bat. You had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. You had to go up there and see that superintendent every single day. And he would let you do that for probably three months. He'd uh, make sure that you need to make sure that he saw you up there every day because if he didn't see you, he'd feel like you laid off a day. Mm -hmm. And so you, you just did that to make sure, I guess, to show him that you could get up in the morning and that you were interested in the job. And after, I guess, he got tired of looking at you every morning, he'd hire you. What was a good wage back then? What you're talking about, this was what year? That was when I started in the mine was April 23rd, 1975. And so what was a good wage in, in the mid-70s? Meaning what? You know, per hour or salary. What the wage that I got at that time was $55.96 per shift. And back then that was, that was decent money. And the shift was like a uh, eight hours. Eight hour shift. So you got fifty-five dollars for eight hours. Right. Did you finish high school? No, ma'am, I didn't. I uh, I went to the tenth grade, and uh, I knew like I, I wasn't going to have a career in college because I uh, I just saw those dollar signs from the coal coal mine, and I just wanted to get. Some, didn't have that much growing up and I just wanted to have things and I guess I was that other people didn't have and I wanted them in a hurry. The smaller companies, the safety wasn't there at that time. Uh, if you wanted something, if you wanted the benefits and you wanted to make the high dollar, you went for one of the larger companies. And at that time, if you didn't know anybody, it was very, very hard to get on. I mean, that's. That's the reason a lot of people, uh, uh, I guess, chose the smaller mine because they didn't, uh, like on the, the other end of the county, you know, they couldn't afford to ride, drive up here like I did and go be that mine every day, you know, uh, uh, asking for a job and kind of expense. But uh, like I said, it probably wouldn't have made much difference anyway. Because you know it's uh, you actually you, to get one of those jobs. I mean, was I mean it's just top of the line. I worked at Scotia. I started there, in, like I said, in April '75. And March the 9th, 1976, we had twin explosions. One on March the 9th. One on March the 11th, which I've lost family relatives relatives in there. My father and all of them was inside the mine when it blew up. I was on my way to work. It blew up. The first explosion was uh, March of 9th around 10 minutes after 12. So I was on my way to work and I got to the portal, or to the gate, where you go in where the guards at. And he told me there had been an accident up there, which he didn't tell me there had been an explosion. And, uh, so. Uh, 
uh, after I got up to the bathhouse, you know, I found out what was going on, and I knew my whole family was under there, but then they kind of pinpointed where it was at, and then most of my family got out, all except I think I had uh, one first cousin and maybe two second cousins that got caught in, and a lot of good friends. And two days later, they went back in to investigate it. They'd gotten all those that 13 was killed the first time, 13 was killed the second time. My whole, all my family went back, you know, and which I was, I was the youngest one, you know. I got they had a layoff after that because they had to close that mine. And then we had some at the upper scene, which I didn't work in the one that blew up anyway. I worked in the upper scene, and uh, so. Uh, yeah, it's, you had doubts, but, you know, I, I, I done knew it that I made that decision that I was going to work in a mine, so I could either work there or come to another one, which I changed jobs. I uh, left there after a layoff, and I came and worked for U.S. Steel for five or six months, and at that time, coal was down, and... Uh, they were only like working three days a week, you know, to keep from having a layout, which Blue Diamond, if production dropped or whatever, you know, and they would have a layoff and then work the rest of them all week. But U.S. Steel, you know, it being UMWA, they tried to keep everybody working. And they would like work three days a week. And, and then getting down working three days a week, you know, you didn't really, you know, it really hurt you financially. You had your time to go over. Would you choose that career? I would. I don't regret a minute of it. I mean, I have made a good living and uh, and able to retire at a at a young age with a profit sharing. You know that that Shamrock Company had, uh, had given all their employees and and no, I wouldn't do anything different. You know, I I, I don't regret it at all. And lastly, we're going to listen to an interview with Mike Obradovich. Mike was actually interviewed multiple times. This is the later of his interviews. And he, in this interview, speaks about the environmental impact of mining. And he just touches the surface here. He talks about some of the pollution. He mentions a specific incident with the TVA, but he gives us just a good introduction to what the environmental cost of mining is. Good morning, this is April the 10th, 2009. I'm here with Austin Carpenter, Preston Blaylock, Jeff Daly, and myself, Justin Shook. We're about to call Mike Obradovich up in Kentucky, a Kentucky coal miner. Um, why did you get into coal mining at, in the start? Well, uh, of course I grew up here and, and, and my dad, <clears throat> Uh, as I told the group before, my dad came from Yugoslavia when he was 16 years old, and and he ended up here in this little community. Of course, I didn't know him. He died before uh, I sort of grew up. He died when I was four. Uh-huh. But uh, sort of grew up here in, in the coal mining industry, and, and then after I graduated from high school, I went on to University of Kentucky. And uh, after that, I got into uh, a couple different uh, businesses. Uh, and worked for a couple different people. And then when the coal boom took off in in the early 70s, uh, they, they were needing people badly. 
and uh, of course my father-in-law was working here then and me and my wife were living in West Virginia and uh, he was telling me about uh, some uh, opportunities here in in the management part of uh, uh, of the coal operations so uh, I came down for an interview and and uh, they offered a whole lot more money than I was making then and of course I took that job and stayed with it for that 28 years that uh, I was in the business. Okay, let me ask you, Mr. Obradovich, what precipitated that 1970s boom in the coal industry that you were referencing earlier? Well, it, it was the market, uh, the manufacturing, the, the, the increase in uh, power plants, the, the need for the power uh -huh. uh, that generated uh, these vast amounts of coal, as it did several years ago. There was a slight uh, boom in, in coal uh, coal output and coal, uh, coal productivity. Uh, that was our latest boom. As of right now, it's sort of in a lull. It's not as high as it was, but it's still there's still a demand for coal. Do you, uh, do you, are you concerned about this um, push for a lot of green energy possibly uh, causing the demand for coal to, to decrease sharply? Uh, I'm not concerned about it, but I, I would like to see that uh, just from the environmental side of it. I, I know what pollution from coal can do uh, just as uh, happened here recently down at the TVA plant in in Tennessee. Are you aware of that? I heard some about it. They had the, was it the fly ash uh, spillover or some kind of? It's, it's the fly ash. And of course, that's a byproduct of when you, when you burn uh, carbon-based substances. What are some other environmental hazards, even hazards to humans, when uh, something like this fly ash spill happens uh, in, in a community? Well, the, the, of course, again, the, the biggest part of it is all those minute particles that that are contaminants. Mercury is one of them, but there's a whole lot of, of other ones, uh, two degrees, and depending on the magnitude of the spill, they may, they may or they may not be of some consequence. But any time you have that, you have... Uh, a large, somewhat uh, lead and zinc uh, or, or in those things, and uh, it just, it takes over the, it, it uh, yeah, I say, it overwhelms the, the, the good particles in the ground, you know, it just, uh, like any contaminant or smell, if you break a rotten egg, then it's going to contaminate the atmosphere. Right. Uh, would you speak briefly about other environmental concerns that you have related to the use of coal in addition to uh, a spill such as that that recently happened at the TVA? Uh, the, the biggest thing with burning burning the coal in uh, in these power plants uh, outside of those fines that, uh, that are left over is, is the emissions that go into the air. Substances that is in coal that, that is released when it's burned is sulfur sulfur dioxide. Uh -huh. Of course, that goes up into the atmosphere and, and creates this acid rain and affects our ozone and all that good stuff. So it's important that these, these companies buy as low sulfur coal as they possibly can to burn one and then have, the, have in place and properly functioning the, the scrubbers that filter out this sulfur dioxide. 
Well, thank you for taking this time to listen to these real stories behind coal mining. Again, if you want to read more about these individuals, their interviews are included in the 2009 issue of the Foxfire magazine. And we'll include more information online as well about the trip that the Foxfire students made to Kentucky to interview these miners and others in their community. As you enter this holiday season, I just encourage you to start conversations with people around you about what coal really is and the impact it's had on our region and our culture, and to maybe share some of these stories with others around you. Well, that's a wrap for us. This is the final episode of season four of It Still Lives. We'll return in late January with first episode of season five. I can't thank you all enough for joining us on this journey. Just a reminder that Foxfire is a 501c3 nonprofit and we are able to bring you this podcast free because of generous support from listeners just like you. If you're interested in helping us continue this podcast as well as other aspects of our mission to preserve and promote Southern Appalachian history and culture, please consider donating to our annual appeal. This campaign runs through the end of the year. You can give over at foxfire.org. Um, there's a link on our homepage that will take you to our giving page. Um, you can track along and see how we're progressing towards our goal. If you can't give this year, that's okay. Please support us in other ways by liking this podcast, rating us, leaving us a review, or just sharing with a friend or family member. Those are all great ways to bring us to new listeners and to help share the wonderful, rich stories that live within our archives. And don't forget to pre-order your copy of our new book coming out in March. It makes a great Christmas gift, builds up to the anticipation and the excitement of getting something else after the Christmas season. That is the Foxfire Book of Appalachian Women. We'll be releasing more information about it in coming months, so be sure to follow us on social media. That's at foxfire.org on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful, safe, and happy holiday season and we will see you in the new year y'all take care if you don't like that you can throw it away i like it <laughs>